Amen. Second Samuel chapter 12, we resume in, at verse 15. Can you imagine, there, there are some characters in the scripture that if, you, if they weren't there, you would really miss them. It would be awful. And David is one of those characters. I, I can't imagine the Old Testament without David. And I don't know if anyone in the Old Testament has influenced my walk as uh, among the characters of people as David. Unbroken Faith is the title for this evening's consideration. And I hope that title um, captures the lesson, a bigger part of the lesson from this evening. Another man could come up here and give the same uh, verses or do a study on them and have a completely different direction. It would be a great blessing, if also possibly, uh, certainly not as good as mine, because he's not going to be humble as me. But anyway, David, to further understand the man, all you need to do is read his Psalms. In fact, if you didn't have the life of David and you just read his Psalms, it's a tremendous blessing. But having his life amplifies his articulate expression of worship. And this comes out. He's still teaching because many of his psalms were to instruct those. Remember those that had come out to follow him to get away from Saul. And he taught them so much. And it, it shows up in their lives and their comments. And it will happen in this chapter also, in the end of this chapter. But let's just consider a few psalms or segments from the psalms of David. Psalm 22, he says, speaking of God, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of of the afflicted. There's so much doctrine in that. That God does not leave us nor forsake us. He does not abandon us when we are afflicted. We might be saying, well, you know what? Then how about not letting me be afflicted? But that's not how life is here. Uh, the, Job called it this hard serv service. That's how he, if man is born of woman, is born into trouble. And the sparks fly upward, said Job. Psalm 25. For your namesake, O Yahweh, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. See, this is why we can identify with David. He calls it like it is. Before I became a believer, I did not know such things were in Scripture. I thought men were guessing about God, that it was a philosophical approach to God. But then when you read the Bible, you realize these are people like me. Psalm 26, Yahweh, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. There he speaks of worship, of course. In verse, in chapter 37. Oh, I'm sorry, there are no chapters in the Psalms. They're whole Psalms. Psalm 37. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For Yahweh upholds him with his hand. And so there's this understanding of the character of God. In hard times, in sin, in worship. Psalm 119, which I believe is a psalm of David. I, my conclusion is there's no one we know of in the scripture that could articulate a psalm like that except David. We have psalms from Moses and Solomon and others. Uh, many of those others are actually influenced by David and their names are, are attached to them. But anyway, Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And there's Psalm 1, Psalm 16, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, Psalm 91, likely written by David also. 
uh, they tell us of this great man of God. And yet this story that we've been considering tells us of his not only flagrant sin, but his atrocious sin. And it brought down serious judgment. David's faith in God, it uh, brought restoration and victory. But what's so significant is that in the judgment, his faith was not broken. And many people, their faith breaks when God deals with them. Now we look at verse 15. Then Nathan departed to his house, and Yahweh struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. This, uh, of course, if you haven't been following, we're, we're talking about... Nathan coming to David, indicting him of his sin, uh, and, and giving him the sentence. This now begins the execution of the sentence. There will be more. Nathan departed his house after he told David, you're the man, and this is what God's going to do because you sinned like this, but you're not going to die. Uh, there was no mood for fellowship after he rebuked David and gave the sentence, of course. There's no indication that Nathan is angry with David, but uh, David has to be left to consider his ways after being dealt with like that, which, which he did. He, again, Psalm uh, 31 and Psalm 51, David writes about these things, and possibly some other Psalms we find indications of his heart still um, expressing what he was going through before God. Um, not a word from David at this moment. What was there to say? He... he Repented. There was nothing he could really say. We'll, we'll hear from him in verse 16, not directly, but his voice will be heard by God as he pleads for the life of the child. It says here also in verse 15, And Yahweh struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. Interesting, still Uriah's wife, and Uriah's dead, and these two have been married for almost a year. It will change in this chapter after the judgment. Very serious. We don't always suffer for wrongs we committed. Many times we don't suffer for Job, Joseph, for example, and others. Jeremiah suffered because he did everything right as a minister of the word of God. The child was innocent, though none of us are born innocent, or in innocence, I should say, uh, given a chance, we are not possibly going to sin. We are guaranteed to sin. And as with any child that suffers, uh, you know, it's difficult to see the innocent uh, have to endure the curse along with us. First uh, Kings chapter 8, verse 46 Solomon, this is when he dedicates the temple, and he talks about praying towards the temple, God's people. He says, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Even the best of people sin. It's simple enough. No objection to any of that. Certainly, we're very interested in what God's going to do about that, and we know. We know the plan of salvation. But that the child goes unnamed indicates that 
He is a newborn, and likely, uh, when the reference comes to seven days, it likely he, he dies before they circumcise him, and he, that his name is not given. Um, that's probably what's letting us know he was a newborn. And perhaps more than anything in the Bible, David's fall teaches us the awfulness of sin, the fact of consequence, and the great possibility of restoration. It warns us how even a good man, a man who talked to God, worshipped God, served God, praised God, can fall into the pit of transgression and sin. And it is God's prerogative to give or to withhold. To give, when he gives, it's called a blessing. When he withholds, it can be called a curse. When God withholds, it is said that he did harm. Um, there is, the Jews understood that throughout the whole Old Testament, and it shows up in their commentaries. Unlike Cain, who killed his brother and resented the judgment, David never murmurs against the sentence that he is given. There is what I call a hundred-year clause that comes with hardship in this life. You have to be a little careful with it. You have to ask yourself, when something happens to you that's not good, what will it matter a hundred years from now? Now, you can't be reckless with that. There's not, there are times when you don't need to say that to anyone. Uh, when the child dies, no one needs to go up to David and Bathsheba and say, well, a hundred years from now won't matter. But there are many other times when it does matter. When it, you know, it is uh, sort of the t- kind word that turns away wrath. Uh, you maybe go, you get a, order, a takeout order, and you get back to the place where you're going to eat it, and you find that they've given you the wrong order. And you know, you can really start feeling the flesh rear its ugly head. Those idiots, and you start, you know, all of the bashing them. And you have to check yourself, else the flesh will just continue. And you say, you know, in a hundred years from now, what will it matter? I'd like to go back and get the order right, make this whole, but I'm not going to go back with this attitude like this is such a big deal in the universe. My point is how we react to God's yeses and nos, to his givings and his withholdings are very important. Ask Jonah. How did Jonah react when God wanted to bless somebody else through Jonah? He did everything wrong. But what he gets right in the end As he says, you know, a hundred years from now, is this going to matter? And he tells us what he did. He holds himself up and says, I'm the poster boy for ministry that fails. Genesis 4, verse 7, God said this to Cain after Cain killed his brother. If you do well, will you not be accepted? How difficult is that to get into the head of a young teen, a teen, or a young adult? How difficult is it, the basic formula, if you do well? Will you not be accepted? You're not entitled to this. You have to do well to earn respect is something that is always earned. Never are we entitled to it. He continues, God does. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Well, what is God supposed to say? Sin lies at the door and it waits for you, and you got no chance. Of course you have a chance. 
And if you should fail, we have an advocate with the Father. Peter says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. And David is going to do just that. And Bathsheba's right along with him. We cannot forget, you know, that the, the sin she committed, as terrible as it is, that is not all there is to Bathsheba. And we'll get to that later on. We are thorough sinners, but God is thoroughly splendid in his ability to deal with the sin. Psalm 103, Psalm 130, verse 3. David again, if you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? It's a splendid God. It's perfect. So when the New Testament writers say, God is love and we're in the midst of affliction. He's no less love because we're afflicted. There are more things that go along with life than surviving tragedy or a lifetime of tragedy. There were likely Christians that were in the salt mines of Rome who died there, mistreated. Just imagine the diet alone was torture enough. Now, verse 16, David therefore pleaded with God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. David knew that in the end, it would be God's will would be done. And David was going to line up with that will. His faith would not be broken by this. My carnal nature does not care about what God wants. In fact, it is so bad, it does not only dislike what I want... It doesn't even care what Satan wants. That's how bad it is. You could take Satan out of the picture and the flesh would still be running. Which is one of the lessons in the millennial kingdom. That Satan's out of the way, but people are still going to mess up. But not as much, because God's going to rule with an iron rod. But it will still happen. And... If I don't agree and learn and train myself to agree with God's will, I'm making... My carnality, a sitting duck for life. Jude, the man of God, said, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, is resisting, fighting back, saying, I'm not going to take this from my flesh. The carnal man is the one who has accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, but does not live as though he is Lord. That's the carnal Christian. He believes the gospel, believes in the Lord. But there's not much in the life of that individual that proves it. And the natural man, uh, as opposed to the carnal man, is unsaved. The Spirit of God is not in them. They are a void of God, according to God's word. And so if they go around and say, well, I believe in God, and uh, they're not born again, it is not the God of the Bible that they have subjected to. And belief in God is not enough. As we've said many a times, the devil believes in God. He is still the devil. It's, so it's not enough to say, I believe in God. Though that is a first positive step. And in prayer, a great purpose in prayer is not to get my will done, but to... Be in communion with God in his presence. And that's how we see David. And that's why I'm bringing this up. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went 
in and lay all night on the ground. Habakkuk, the prophet, when God said, Habakkuk, I'm going to trust you with something that's going to happen in the future to my people, your people, Habakkuk. The Chaldeans are coming and they're fierce and nobody's going to be able to stop them. And Habakkuk was just almost distraught at this. And he writes about it to tell us. And he says, after he, you know, expresses his disdain, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. You see, that's the way to enter into prayer. God is right. I'm wrong. I might not like what he's doing. It may be harsh to me because it is harsh to me. But at the end, my faith will not be broken by this. And I won't take the time because we need to move forward. But he closes the third chapter with this great pledge of faith in the midst of having nothing left. He said, you know, though the fig tree may not bear fruit, in the end, I'm going to be praising God. Well, David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, loss of appetite to gain communion with God. So the appetite for food is replaced by an appetite for God. That is the purpose of fasting. Not to get my will done because I don't trust my will. It's God's will I'm trying to discern, to learn, to carry out. And shutting the flesh up by starving it a little bit is a nice first step. And it's really difficult. And, uh, you know, it burns off the carnal dross. Verse 17 So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. These are good friends to have. Come on, David, you got to eat. This is, you know, it's going to do what it's going to do. Something like that they're saying to him. And uh, it says, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. The guilt that he was afflicted with because he caused all this. And Bathsheba, she's suffering too. She's just not in the picture. But she is just suffering. It's the mom. We have no right to think that she was somehow different from any other great mom. Because of one sin. Regardless of how tragic it, it, it is. And so David is here. He is the cause of death for Uriah. And now for this child. So understandably... And David uh, does not want this sentence of judgment. He is pleading for the child. Verse 18, Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. So they were reading David. They loved him. That should, that's very important to the story. It's like Naaman. Naaman had these people that just loved him. So much so, one of the, the Jewish girl that was captured cared for Naaman. Oh, if my, if my master were only in Israel, she, he could, the prophet would be there to heal him. And that was what caused, brought Naaman's healing. And then his friends like Naaman, if he told you to climb a mountain, you'd do it. Just go jump in the lake. And, and he does. And, as, you know, he's healed. He had people around him. To recognize in life good people around you is really nice when, when it's mutual, when they recognize too. Uh, one reason that, you know, 
people have to pay for counselors because they, they burn out their friends by not being, you know, you can't tell them anything. They don't want to hear the truth, so they go pay somebody who, you know, will abide. Anyway, that's one of my thoughts. I've got plenty more. Uh, <laughs> the child died. So the prayers and the fastings of David could not reverse the decision of God. Now, God's perfect will is that no one dies, but he has a permissive will. And that permissive will lets a lot of things happen under the curse that we are, that we endure. When we get to heaven, what will make it paradise is it is God's perfect will and nothing will tarnish or diminish that. From the book of Kings, we get this insight on God's perspective of death. So the child dies. And, of course, understandably, this rattles us. Because the child, as people go, is innocent, though born in sin. But in Kings, King Jeroboam had such an opportunity to serve God well and did not. He was a northern king. And... His child gets sick. He sends his wife to the prophet to find out if the child is going to survive. And she disguises herself, but the prophet discerns who it is. And this is what he says to her in the end. He says, when your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave because... In him there is found something good toward Yahweh, God of Israel, and the house of Jeroboam. In him is found something good. That tells me that the child was rewarded with heaven. And the parents were punished. Not always the case, not at all. Yes, it, what this part is always the case. When a child dies, they are rewarded with heaven. Uh, I believe that. And that when we come to David, it says, I shall go to the child. The child shall not come to me. He's saying the child is in heaven. But, you know, there's that age of accountability, which comes out with Israel, you know, who could enter into the promised land, who could not. And we get some glimpses of that. But this also tells me that God is not overly impressed with this life. It's not like, oh, oh, this death? What am I going to do? That's not God's reaction. Joshua and David said, I, I go the way of all the earth. That's how they mentioned that I'm dying soon. I go the way of all the earth. All the earth is going to die. And this is, I think, such a critical little section in the scripture. That God says, I don't have to repeat this. I say it one time, you'll know it. That's how important this is. And since God is bringing the child to a far better place, and this is what the case, you know, uh, God is not unmoved by the death of the righteous. Not for the righteous' sake, it's for the living. When Jesus wept, it wasn't for Lazarus. It was for all those who were moaning around him. He felt their, their grief. Uzzah, Uriah, the Bethlehem innocents, Stephen, Antipas, Paul. They went to a better place. When Stephen said, I see the Lord standing at the throne of God. He's saying he's standing up to receive me. He could stand up to wipe everybody out. That's not what he's about right now. And so God is touched <clears throat> with the pity for the living. 
not the righteous dead. This is an uh, intergenerational consequence. David did something, he and Bathsheba and their children suffered for this. It is not an intergenerational curse. I do not believe the Bible teaches that. There can be consequences to a society perpetuating a sin that children are born into, but that's not a curse. They can get out of that. We see people born in <clears throat> bad places, and they get out. Some of them go into the military, and they escape that lifestyle, and they do something very productive with their lives. They don't go back. Some had believed that there was a blind man that they questioned Jesus. The apostles came to him because this was the mindset of the Jews. They said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, no, but so that you can see, so God can be glorified, I'm going to heal this guy. He just took the subject to a different place. But he said, no, it's not, he's not blind because he sinned or his parents sinned. 2 Kings 14. And since I've been here in Virginia, I've come across quite a few people who I don't know where they've picked this up. I think it was before the days of the Internet. Now, you know, anyway. I said, where do you get this? Everybody's cursed now. You can't, you know, so that's your excuse for sin? I have to sin because I'm cursed. That's the mindset that usually goes with it. 2 Kings 14. You all could be saying, we've never heard of such a thing. Can you move on? But uh, I've got to finish 2 Kings 14. But the children of the murderers he did not execute. According to, this is one of Judah's kings, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, in which Yahweh commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor the children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. In this case, God is uh, executing a judgment, withholding the cure, and the child comes home to heaven. But it is not a, a generational sin. Though it, so going, going back to my earlier statement, it is an intergenerational consequence. It is not an intergenerational curse. Uh, so uh, you can, I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. I hope you are too. I could have just created more questions. <laughs> that's, hopefully that's what you don't want to do when you're trying to answer questions. So let no one charge God with what we are forbidden to do. The servants of David were afraid, it tells us in verse 18, to tell him that the child was dead. And noble folk don't like bringing bad news, and that's just a fact. Something's wrong with a person when they can't wait to give bad news. Isaiah says a righteous man stops his ears. He doesn't, you know, enough with the news. Turn that off. I mean, what are we going to do now? Just, you know, wallow in this all day. Uh, but they feared he would harm himself. Again, because it was his sin, and they saw the, the, the the pathos, that the, the grief that David had over the child. Verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And so David, of course, he's not lost his ability to reason. He's not hysterical. And he has not forgotten the message delivered by Nathan. And he sees that this is now a concluded matter. Verse 20, so David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of Yahweh and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. 
Well, he had mourned before the loss of the child. His laying out before God was his, you know, pouring out of grief. He, he knew what was coming. He hoped that it wouldn't happen, but it did. And now there's nothing more to do. It says, and he went into the house of Yahweh and worshipped. Access to God never stopped for David. He knew God would receive him. So we look at this and we say, okay, what we have here is this splendid God that is ready to forgive. Then why are Christians so quick sometimes to just have people go to hell and just judge Bible characters in their, you know, in their perspective? You know, God is looking to save us. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's, the, that's where we start from. And we unfortunately work backwards when someone doesn't want to hear it. But we should not, we are children of grace. We're not the law. Making a crime scene out of every single mistake somebody else makes. Again, that doesn't mean restoration is automatic. Because sometimes it's impossible. But it does mean our heart does not bear the grudge and look for the person's destruction. Psalm 34, verse 18. Yahweh is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Why would I want to interfere with that? The death of this child was not enough to break the faith of David and Bathsheba. David, in his guilt, he knew that his, his desperate need to get before God would not be satisfied by ceremonial law. He knew that, you know, there was no oxen. He could take, he could take a herd of oxen and it wouldn't change God. It would not re- deal with the sin. Uh, of course, the, the New Testament writers, they, they, they get on to this. They said, listen, even the saints knew that there had to be a greater Savior to come and get us out of this. Psalm 51, which he wrote sometime after these events, about these events, for you do not... Desire sacrifice, <clears throat> or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. He knew that. He knew that God would not shove him away. He knew that if he grieved genuinely over his sin, God would receive him, and that is just what happened. And who else is this articulated, articulate so often in the Old Testament? I mean, others, uh, not to slight others, but David, in this area, he stands out. So not only does life go on, but life goes on with faith in God. You know, we have that, so we don't like it, you know, especially when someone else tells us, listen, life goes on. We don't want to hear that when we're struggling. We're actually saying, well, I hope not. I hope it can stop. Well, if it's going to go on, let it go on in faith. With faith. He lost a child. An ultimate loss would have been to lose his faith. And he wasn't about to lose that too. Uh, So, you know, grief doesn't stop worshiping. That's part of the lesson of this chapter. We're looking at David and we're seeing what he does. Why is that? Because God shows so much favor on this man before this happened, while this was happening, after this is happening. God just continues to pour grace on him, still loves him. And, and we're coming to that. 
James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. We call them blessed. We call them blessed who endure. That's what James says. If James was in the military, no question, he would be a drill instructor. There is no question. He just, because he drives you. You read his, you read his letter, and it's a force march. And if you've ever been on a force march one time, you don't want to go on another one. Anyway. Uh, then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Well, he had been before the ark of God, the presence of God. And he knew, he knew. Why is he able to now have a meal? Because he knows that he's going to be reunited with this departed child who he never got to know. When David dies, he knows he will see this child. The reality shows up when the Bible says he went and comforted his wife Bathsheba. He just did things with, with what he went through for God. He was therefore able to console God. We have a high priest who's not... He, he's able to sympathize with us because he was tempted. He had to face the things we faced, yet he was without sin. And what we're being told here is David had to face this. And his unbroken faith went to his wife. And the two of them moved forward. Verse 21 and I hope when I get to Bathsheba, I hope I get points with the ladies that they, they, they like me more because <laughs> I, I can be a little bit against what society is saying women should be. Uh, verse 21, then his servant, well, pardon me, I can be a whole lot against what society is saying women should be. In fact, it could be like 100%. Anyway, verse 21, then his servant said to him, what is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And so now David, David, when his light shined, wrote one commentator, it always shined a path to the Lord. And that's here it is. He's going to glorify God. They're learning something. That's what I meant. David's unbroken faith was constantly picking others up. In the presence of God to God. It wasn't some, you know, uh, fortune favors, favors the brave, which is some truth to that. It just was getting people to God. He was a source of instruction for so many people around him then and through the ages. How much of the Bible do, uh, do we understand from the Bible about God because of what David said in his Psalms, in his life? I mean, again, the 23rd Psalm. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How can you not read that and say, yeah, that's what my Bible says. David said, Jesus said, David said, in the spirit. God was saying the Holy Spirit spoke to David and said, the Lord said to my Lord. And he's prophetic. They did not understand the life in the spirit as David did. So he taught them. He didn't say, how could you be so dumb? You know, what's wrong with you? You know, the kind of person that always pecks at everybody else because they don't, he thinks, well, she thinks they don't know as much as they do. And just, those people are like Brillo pads. I mean, it's just abrasive and just, ah, man, you rub up against them, you get a rash. I don't want to be that way. I fear that sometimes I am, but it's the other person's fault for getting so close. (laughs) 
<laughs> you just spin it around to the other guy and you'll be good in life. Just the judgment is the thing you've got to worry about. Verse 22. And he said, <clears throat> David speaking. <clears throat> I wonder if David had allergies. <laughs> it's like, not now, Joab. <laughs> i got to get some. Okay, all right, anyway. Uh, David did all oh, he could. Here we are, back to verse 22. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether Yahweh will be gracious to me that the child may live? So he's saying, all right, everything I've tried with God, it doesn't work. God, this is God's will. And uh, later, he will face a similar situation with Absalom, but he's going to bewail the loss of Absalom, who was very guilty. But verse 23 is continuing with this, this thought. Um, I fasted and wept, and thinking God was going to maybe listen to me, and the child would live, verse 23. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. You see the doctrine in David's teaching? How, how, how many of us have locked on to that word? When you think about all the children that have been murdered before birth, you know, they have these euphemistic names for it. It's abortion. It's murder. It's murder. It's nothing short of murder. Now, there are some exceptions, granted. And if you have ever uh, engaged in this, God will forgive. God is that splendid God always ready to fix it if you just come. And that's what we're getting from this. God is going to fix this. And in David's case, he's, he, you know, this sin was so, so scandalous, so public, so awful, it had to be dragged into the light and dealt with. But David created that situation. And uh, here, you know, can I bring him back again? The logic, the, 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 the theology. Uh, no seances, no trying to contact him. I shall go to him, he shall not return to me. It's a law of the, of the scripture. God knows that the death of the innocent is an improvement for the innocent, but difficult for those of us who remain. He knows this. First Kings again that I read earlier, because in him is found something good toward Yahweh God. And so God wanted to make this very clear, that the child was not guilty. The parents were guilty. The child is in heaven, and that's what David is saying. When Jesus said, take heed, that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father. Who is in heaven? That's pretty, that's, that's, that's almost eerie if you've been messing up. I mean, imagine those who, who run the abortion industry. Uh, imagine saying this to them. They'd like to abort you for saying something like this to them. People, they come, you know, when they hear a man of God speak, the unbelievers, they come with their expectation that he's going to conform to whatever thing they've made up in their head about God. And when he doesn't, they're so shocked. It's like, grow up. You've just been dealt a dose of truth. And you, you have a choice in how this truth is going to affect you forever. Uh, 
Talking to the dead is forbidden in Scripture, including talking to Mary. And Deuteronomy 18 makes that clear. Isaiah says it this way. Should, should not a people seek their God? And then he says this. Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? I mean, they got it. They already died. What do they know about living? <laughs> they didn't pass the test. I mean, you could have a little fun with that. But in reality, he's saying, why are you talking to them? They were sinners. They died. Go to God. And the Old Testament saints, they knew there would be a resurrection of the righteous. Somehow, some way, someday. Job says, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service. There he is talking about life. I will wait till my change comes. Job says. In Jeremiah, here's an interesting thing. You, you know, the innocents that were killed in Bethlehem. Matthew connects that to Jeremiah 31, Rachel weeping for her children. But if you go to that section of Scripture, you can't discard the rest of the application where God says that the children will be reunited. I should read that because it's quite intense. And I'm ready. Boy Scouts rule. Be prepared. Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Thus says Yahweh, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they were no more. Okay, that's, that's Matthew's gospel, chapter, chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, where Herod murdered the innocent children. And Matthew says, this is prophetic. God is on this. He's not missed this. And he says something else about this. And it's in Jeremiah. And if you're a student of the word and you make the connection, you go to Jeremiah 31, then you see what else God has to say about that. Thus says Yahweh, verse 16, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says Yahweh, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in the future, says Yahweh, that your children shall come back to their own border. You see, the, the first application of Jeremiah is to the nation of Israel. But the spiritual application that the Holy Spirit gave Matthew was to, to, to bring it to what happened that day in Bethlehem. So no one can say, well, God is exhausted by death. God says those innocents were rewarded. They died ahead of your schedule, but on my schedule. And where they are now is where you will be. And so 100 years from now, what does it matter? Where I will be, that's what it will matter. God does pity. Jonah chapter 4, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? And a lot of animals, too. That's what he says, a lot of livestock. So God says, Don't, let's just keep, keep your perspective right. That's what your doctrine is for. That's what learning about God is for, to row through this life, to hack through it when necessary. Now, I really, really like being at peace. And I just get upset with little things, you know, sometimes. Um, I'm not external, just into my head. It's like, Lord, you know, I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of these stupid things. They're going to wear a mask. <laughs> I mean, it's just like they're failing. They're not working. Why do I got to cover up this face? <laughs> now, that's not funny. I could take that the wrong way. <laughs> People say, well, it's not COVID-related why you got to wear a mask. <laughs> All right. Verse 24. 
Then David confronted Bathsheba's, Bathsheba, comforted. He confronted. <laughs> then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son and called his name Solomon. Now Yahweh loved him. Now this is, we're getting deeper into doctrine and the splendid character. I should have named the message splendid something, right? Uh, he does not disown her. He does not. He could have very easily, as he did with Michelle. She suffered with right there with him, and she was not embittered by her punishment either. Psalm or Proverb fourteen: The wise woman builds her house, and this is what Bathsheba did. But the foolish woman pulls down, pulls it down with her hands, and that's what Michelle did. She pulled that house down. We covered that with her. It says here, David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, before she was Uriah's wife, in verse 12. Now, the judgment has passed. God has dealt with this. Legitimacy is granted to the marriage after the judgment. What's God supposed to do? Wipe them out? It's the mercy of God. Uriah in heaven would have no objection. It's more like, I'm in heaven. <laughs> There's no being upset. I am out of that trash can. And uh, that's, uh, that is a fact. She bore a son. Now we are about four to five years after that firstborn died. How do we get to that? Well, if you look at Chronicles one place, it's also in Samuel. But Chronicles 3, 5, <clears throat> the children of Bathsheba, the sons of Bathsheba are, are named. And we believe that they're in chronological order. That would make Solomon her fifth son, four surviving, that uh, they're named in Chronicles, and this one, the one that died, not named. Or you could say, well, the, you know, he, he is the eldest son, and he is named. It doesn't, it's, that part's irrelevant. The part is that uh, we're now four years later. She's had other children. Their marriage continued. Their faith was unbroken. And it says here about this son, if Solomon is the youngest, and I believe he is, of Bathsheba's children with David, he called his name Solomon. Well, the God commanded him to do this. That comes out later when David is telling Solomon as a grown man, look, I couldn't build a temple because I'm a man of war. But God told me, and I'll read it. God, and David says this. This is what God said to me. First Chronicles 22, verse 9. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest <clears throat> from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon. For I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. One of the most incredible things about this is if David, again, if Solomon is the youngest, how much discernment did it take for David to know, well, I'm not supposed to name the first, second, and third one. The third one was Nathan, after Nathan the prophet, of course. It just speaks of their bond. And that's going to come out again in, in, in the next verse. But David is told by God, you're going to name this boy Solomon. Well, David's having other boys, too, with other wives. How does he know Solomon gets the name? Because God is in his life. God doesn't leave him. After all that David's been through, God doesn't say, you know what? You had your chance. Man, the grace of God. It says, now the Lord loved him. This is Solomon. 
He's the only person in the Old Testament that God says this about. So I better be very careful when I get to Kings and I find out he really messed up, but yet God uses him to write Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon's, give us the Proverbs. I better be very careful before I start throwing stones at Solomon, which a lot of people do. I remember at one conference I was at, one of the pastors said, do you think Solomon's in hell? And, uh, you know, I gave him my reason why I thought it was a stupid question. I didn't say it that way. (laughs) And I didn't even think it that way. But as the years go by, I've come to that. It's a foolish question because you have to look at the whole picture. And I want to open a little bit of that up. But God, again, wanted it clear that this child whom he names to be Solomon, would one day be king and he would be loved in spite of what his parents' past sins were. He would, be, he would succeed David. And Jesus, when he talks about Solomon, the two times he mentions him, they're both positive. He said the queen of Sheba couldn't, you know, she was blown away by what Solomon said. Better one than Solomon is here, but I'm just telling you. God blessed Solomon, he was saying, and I'm way past Solomon. And another time she says, you know, Solomon, uh, you know, the, consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor they spin. And then he says, Solomon and all of his glory was not arrayed such as one of these. And he is saying Solomon was the recipient of tremendous blessings. He did not say Solomon was the tre- recipient of tremendous blessings, but he messed it all up. He did not say that. And when people did mess it all up, he'd point that out. So, coming back to this, uh, God promised David that he would not treat this child harshly. Nehemiah chapter 13, 26, David, uh, pardon me, did, looks like the word David, if you glance at it very quickly. Just notice that. You might, your homeschoolers might want to point that out to your kids. Now, here's the word did. Don't say David like Doofus did in the pulpit the other day. (laughs) All right. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin, end quote. This Nehemiah, and you know, Nehemiah was a no-nonsense guy. He pulled hair out of people when they messed up in front of them. So I struck them, and I pulled their hair out there. And he was, like, very proud of this because he was getting things done. I, this is one of my favorite chapters in Nehemiah 13. Anyway, he brings up Solomon, and he says, even him, he sinned. He's, he's accepting that this is what the flesh will do to us. Yes, Scripture says, his wives turned his heart after other gods. That does not mean he bowed to them. That means he tolerated them. He he gave them promotion. Solomon in his thinking, if you look at his life, you know he's he's messing up because he's saying, well, this is for the good of the kingdom. I don't believe in these things, but if I do these things, it would be good for him. And that's just wrong, and that's what he did. And you read the Ecclesiastes, and you say, he's admitting to this logical approach that failed. And then he figures it out. You know what? All these things on earth is vain without God. But by that time in his life, he's, you know, he's sort of like burnt out from doing it wrong. But he's still God's man. And he he says, this is the whole conclusion of the matter. Serve God. This is your duty. 
And so we go back to 2 Samuel when David was receiving this great blessing from God by Nathan. Nathan says this about Sam, uh, Solomon. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. My mercy shall not depart from him. Why not? Because there's more to the story than that's on the surface. And if you're going to get beneath the surface, you've got to dig into the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, the Proverbs, the life of Solomon, the life of David, these promises of God. Why? Because of me. I complicate my own walk so much, I need to know that my, my salvation is invincible. Satan can't just trip me up just because it caused even him to sin, even him received grace and mercy because God was with him. No contradiction in this. It's a fuller conclusion. And I'm not ready to say, well, God used Solomon to write scripture and for us to follow those writings and then sent him to hell. When God says, my mercy is not leaving this guy. That's what the Bible says. And you, we only don't like it when it's about somebody else. In this case, Solomon. But when it's us, we can't wait for that mercy. We can't wait for the pastor to say, look, if you repent, God will build you back. Some, some you know, they, they want that. And then they, they, they're not interested in, in following the Lord anymore. As others are. Verse 25, we're, we're going to be a little late. Um, 10 o'clock, we should get out of here. The kids will be sleeping by then. Uh, bring them to church in their pajamas. And Anyway, I'm kidding. We're not going to be that long. Verse 25, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of Yahweh. Man, this is profound. This is not said about, I mean... He's calling him my beloved one. Um, so again, verse 25, he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. See, Nathan was the go-to guy. There were other men God could have used, but he sticks with Nathan and because Nathan and David were close. Nathan was an essential part of David's life. Would to God we'd have somebody in our life like this. And Nathan's last message, of course, was one of judgment and rebuke. But this time it is all blessings. The prophet of God uses, you know, has a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. So he called his name Jedidiah, literally loved by Yahweh. Yah is, uh, this, as used here, is a contracted form of Jehovah or Yahweh. And so uh, Jedidiah is, is beloved of God. And it is um, for Solomon and no one else, as, as it applies here. We can now apply it to ourselves. As I mentioned, it says God will love him. It wasn't said about anybody else in the Old Testament. But what did John say? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, that's me. I can say that. You can say that. If you're born again, you can, I'm the disciple whom, whom Jesus loved. I'm not the only one, but I, he loves me. And uh, don't you dare let... Let it come out of your mouth that he doesn't love you. That would be Satan using you as, uh, you know, a ventriloquist uses a puppet. He'd be talking through you. Don't go for it. 
Uh, you can't serve God if, if, you don't if you don't receive his love. You don't have to understand it. You have to receive it. You can understand it uh, if you have children. And maybe they, you know, are just breaking your heart. You still love them. So, because they're real to you and God should be too. And this name for Solomon is not mentioned anywhere else. And um, some say, well, maybe it's a throne name he was given because God, David clearly said he's supposed to name him Solomon. What happened with Christ, did it not? And his name shall be called Jesus. And then, behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us, because that's linking it back to the prophecy of Isaiah. And also, just shutting down, you, you couldn't say... Michael the angel is called Emmanuel. You couldn't say Peter is Emmanuel or Abraham. Only Jesus. He has to be equal with God, not a created being, to have that moniker attached to him. And that is one of the reasons why Matthew links it. Because Matthew's writing to the Jews and he's saying, this is our Messiah and he is God the Son. He come, and when, when you get the Apostles' Creed, he comes from the Father. He's always been there. But when he came in human form, he came in, into humanity. Thus, the, the limitations that were self-imposed. He says, because of Yahweh. So the critical development in sending Nathan the prophet here seals up this section. In verse 1, sin was addressed. Nathan, you've got to take this message. In verses 2 through 12, sin was exposed. Nathan's indictment, you're the man. In verse 13, we have sin renounced, and David repents his reaction that I mentioned earlier is so critical. How we react, how, and Jonah teaches us that. Jonah said, I reacted the wrong way, but I fixed it. But not after I took a few beatdowns for it. I mean, that whole fish belly thing is disgusting. You ever been to a fish market? Who'd want to be inside of one of those things? Anyway... Uh, verse 14 through 23, sin abounds. That's the death, the death of the child. But then verses 24 through 25, grace did much more. God's love, God's justice was clear, but his mercy is outstanding. We clearly see that God says, I don't, I don't think this is a joke. I'm going to deal with this. But we also say, and I don't think God's saying, I don't think your soul is a joke or trivial to me. I'm going to keep you mine so long as you want to be mine. Uh, verse 26. Now, Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. <clears throat> now we go back five years again. Back to Rabbah where the whole thing started. And I'm going to give a review of that in a moment, but... Uh, this is where the epic scandal was born when David stayed behind and Joab went out. Um, so the chronology is tossed out the window because the writer is just, oh, let me close up the matter what happened with Rabbah, which was in the midst of all this. So here's the sequence again. Uh, David sends condolences to probably King Nahash's uh, son and kingdom uh, over the loss of their father through his envoys, but they abuse David's men and shame them, an act of war. Ammon, which is Jordan today, uh, and Rabbah, the city of uh, in that is being spoken of here today, is a thriving city. Anyway, 
They anticipate David's going to come get us for this. We've made a mistake, but we'll hire mercenaries. Armenians and Syrians will bring them down, their troops, and we'll beat David back. So David sends Joab and his troops with his brother Abishai, and uh, they war against the two, and they defeat the Syrians and, uh, and the Ammonites. But the Ammonites, you know, they hide up in the city. Um, Joab returns to Jerusalem, the city un- going to be under siege. Ammon sends again for help from the Syrians. They come. David then goes out to battle this time with Joab. They defeat the Syrians, leaving them afraid to help Ammon another time. And everybody goes home. But then in the spring, Joab returns to Ammon to finish what was started. And that's when David remained in Jerusalem and sinned with Bathsheba when he should have been with the troops. Uriah, while, while Joab is besieged in the city and David had sinned, Uriah, of course, is brought back to Jerusalem, but he doesn't cooperate with David's plan, and so David has him killed in action. Joab then calls David to Rabbah to claim the victory because they took the water supply. And they said, David, we've got the water. They can't hold out now. Uh, you come down and take the city. It is the honor of the king. And uh, which is Joab's loyalty to David. And they do just that. They take the city, and then every, we're going to get that in a minute, what David then does. But uh, ultimately, he goes back to Jerusalem, and that's when Nathan the prophet comes and deal with, deals with David um, uh, after that. And then uh, a few years later, Solomon would be born. Uh, that's when you take all the stories together and you put the pieces in, um, that's my conclusion. Um, it, it does not work any other way, I, I find. Anyhow, verse 27, and Joab sent messengers. We're going back in time now. He's wrapping up the story. <clears throat> David sent messengers to David. Uh, Joab sent messengers to David, verse 27, and said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have taken the city's water supply. And so the, the, the honor of capturing the fortified city was reserved. For David, and the water supply sped things up. Uh, verse 28, Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take it, and it be called after my name. Well, Joab knew how to light a fire under David. He says, you know, he doesn't want to come to war. <laughs> so, But if he understands the city is going to be called the city of Joab, he's going to run here. And it worked. Verse 29, So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah. Uh, this was once the land of the giants. Uh, King Og, uh, Og uh, Deuteronomy 3, his bed was 13 feet long, 13 and a half feet long, 6 feet wide. And uh, he had a contract with the NBA, but he was just, he was not a good ball handler. Anyhow, this, uh, in fact, so giants in the Bible, how, how tall? Well, we got an idea from Goliath and Og. They're not 50 feet people that, uh, you know, you could just step on you. They were just ridiculously tall. Uh, but battlefield victories are not enough, and that's part of this story. Verse 30, Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones. It was gaudy. And it was set <laughs> on David's head. Uh, also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And so there the city is conquered. Ezekiel and Amos will prophesy about this city. 
They did wrong when Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered. They did wrong to the Jews. And God says, I'm going to deal with them. Verse 31. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks, iron axes, made them cross over the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. And then Nathan's going to deal with him after that. So uh, some translations read as though David tortured these people. Not very likely, even though those people, that was a practice that they held. It was not a practice of the Jews. Uh, I think the King James is proper in saying David made made slaves out of them. He enslaved them for, for this war. And somebody had to pay for it. Life's bitter experiences. That's what we're concluding with. They should not be enough to break the faith of those who have a heart after God. That's the lesson. Uh, I don't want to have to live that out personally. I don't think anybody does in their right mind. But unbroken faith beats evil in the end. And just getting to the end is, uh, can be quite, quite difficult. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, for these lessons. Again, as always, may we do something to your glory with them. May you get us all home safely in Jesus' name. Amen.